And today you're going to hear from three different dads. They come from different stages of life. They come from uh, three different ages of life. And just backgrounds of how they related to their dad or didn't and how it has impacted their life. And so I believe you're going to be very, very touched today by these three different men of God, just good friends of mine. And if you would, we're going to start with, let me just introduce them to you real quick. you got Pastor Leo right here. You're going to hear from him last. Jalen right here in the middle and Dave right here. And if you would begin with me, just will you welcome Jalen up as he shares his story. Well, uh, before I begin, I just, I saw one of our guests in the back raise his hand. You, is that your wife? You have an Air Force hat on? Thank you for your service. So thank you for being here today with us. You know, a lot of what we have in this country is because of men and women like you. So thank you. Um, as Pastor said, my name is Jalen. I've been married for 20 years this Wednesday to my wife right there on the second row. Yep. Thanks for loving me. I got three boys. Um, they're awesome. They keep me in line and keep me active. Um, I wanted to share with you real quick a dream that I had uh, just the other night. And before I begin, you know, not really a joke or anything, but it's a dream I had. So I dreamed that I went to heaven. Um, I know it sounds like a joke. It's not. And I was walking up to the pearly gates and I ran into Peter. Uh, usually that's how, how it works, right? And I saw him there, and he's like, hey, let me give you a quick tour of heaven before I take you to your, uh, your mansion. I'm like, sweet. So I'm walking around with him, and he's showing me around, and he takes me in this big, giant room, massive room with billions of clocks all over the place, like clocks everywhere, every wall, different sizes, and, and they're all ticking at like different, um, you know, different paces. Some are hardly ticking at all. Some are ticking pretty good, you know, and um, my, my wife's clock was there. I saw it, and it was barely ticking. And, uh, you know, I saw other people, pastor, I saw yours there. It was ticking a little faster than my wife's. Uh, but I asked Peter, I was like, you know, what are all these clocks? And he's like, well, these clocks represent everybody who's still on earth. And the, the hand ticks for every time they sin. And I was like, that explains why pastors was ticking a little faster than my wife's. <laughs> and then I got to looking and I was like, wait a second. I don't see, I don't see Pastor Craig's clock anywhere. Like, where is that thing? And I, I'm like, Peter, I know he's still alive. Where's his clock? And Peter says, well, you know, God's using it in the other room for a fan. Anyway, in honor of Father's Day, there's your dad joke. So <laughs> it's a little longer dad joke, but it works. Um, the title of my, my message here, just for a few minutes, is called The Older I Get, The Smarter My Dad Was. And uh, man, it's so true. I hated a lot of things he told me to do and not to do. And the older I get, I'm like, yeah, I sound like my dad to my kids now. You know, um, my story might be similar to yours. It might be quite a bit different. Uh, but I just, you know, hope and pray that, that something that is spoken today by by one of us up here, uh, just hits home and resonates with you. But I was raised in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor. He still is. He's over in St. Mary's probably preaching right now. Uh, and, and so I was raised in that environment. Both my parents loved me, uh, and I was introduced to Christ at a young age and, and grew up in that home where they, both my parents loved me, and I knew that, and I felt that for many, many years. Uh, and I still do. Uh, but, 
that didn't come easy. My dad was raised in a, in a home that they didn't know the Lord uh, all the way into high school. And he, he was 16 years old. He just went to a church, an Assembly of God church in his hometown, Packwood, Washington. And it happened to be the one Sunday that my mom uh, was visiting there as a traveling evangelist. They went around and sang music and did all this stuff. And he met Jesus and my mom at the same time, which is pretty cool. And uh, he worked for many years following that to, to break off what we know as generational curses in his family, that he was dealt, the hand he was dealt, what he was raised in, he worked and prayed and worked with the Lord's help to break those generational curses so that I could have the blessing of being raised the way I was. And, and hopefully that blessing continues on to my kids, and I, I believe it is. But um, he, he worked that way. And for some of you in here that maybe you've been dealt a rough hand, you can do it. With the Lord's help, you can break those generational curses. And it takes a lot of work, takes a lot of time, but it can be done. And so just to encourage you in that, I wanted to share three quick things that I learned from my dad that, uh, that I'm, I'm working hard to teach my kids. So you can take some of these, uh, hopefully, for your life as well. In Colossians chapter um, 3, verse 23 through 24, it says this. Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. First thing I learned from my dad is to work hard. Work hard. I remember the first job I had. I was 12 years old. My brother, a year and a half older than me, he was 13. And uh, we started, with my dad's help, our first landscaping business and only landscaping business called the Eager Beaver. Yeah. It was similar to like, the early bird gets the worm kind of thing, but apparently we were eager to work. And uh, we, we, I learned at an early age, with my dad's help, and he helped me with a lot of things, to, that if, if I worked hard and I worked well, I usually got paid well. Okay? In most cases, except for the one time with a lady across the street where we did like hours of, and we lived in Arizona, it was not cold or cool. You know, and we're raking rocks in the summer, and the lady pays me and my brother with a six-pack of Diet Pepsi. We had to split it. I'm like, come on. That is not four hours of rock raking, you know. And, and what 12-year-old likes Diet Pepsi? So that was one of the cases where that didn't really pan out, where you worked hard, didn't get paid well. But I learned that, that, man, you work hard, you usually get paid well. I also learned as I got older into high school years that if you, you, you can actually make yourself unfireable. You show up early, you stay late, you get the job done, you do what your boss tells you to do without sinning, but you do those things, you usually make yourself unfireable. You can request the days off that you want and you can hold your boss to that because he knows or she knows that they can't afford to lose you. That's, and I, I, as a youth pastor, I would tell the kids that all the time, like, hey, do these things and then you can actually ask for Wednesdays off because your boss knows he has to give it to you. That's a side note. And then as I got older, I realized, you know what? It's not really about just working hard. It's about working as unto the Lord. That really is what it comes down to. And that we don't work for pay. We don't work for a man. We don't work for ourselves if I'm self-employed. We work for the Lord. Because if I work for money, I get paid only money. But as I'm plowing my driveway this winter, do it for the Lord. Go to my job. Do it for the Lord. And I get paid in many other ways than just monetarily. Work hard, work for the Lord. Second thing I learned is in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 11 and 12. It says this. Next in rank was Shammah, son of Agi from Harar. 
Uh, one time the Philistines gathered at Lehi and attacked the Israelites in a field full of lentils. Super important bean patch. If you read it historically, that was their livelihood. This was not just an ordinary garden, okay? And they were attacked at this field full of lentils. The Israelite army fled, but Shammah held his ground in the middle of the field and beat back the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Side note, uh, if you have young boys, especially, but young kids, but especially young boys like I do, turn their attention to these types of chapters. And the book of Judges, 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel. Man, it creates so much courage in a young boy. I, like I said in the last services, what young boy doesn't want a toy gun? There's something in young men that, that they need, excuse me, they need some level of violence. They do. It's, you, I'm just going to leave it there. I'm not a psychologist or whatever they call that. But, but seriously, turn them to these. It'll, it'll create a desire to want to read the word. When they could read about real life heroes like this, not just watch it in Lord of the Rings. You know what I'm saying? Turn them that way. That was for free. But I learned from my dad, the second thing is to stand firm. Stand firm. I can tell you, I saw my dad many, many, many times stand for what was right. Speak the truth when no one else was maybe doing it. Maybe he didn't speak at all when everyone else was speaking because he held, he held his tongue. And I got to witness this many, many times. I remember uh, one time, I didn't share this story, but I remember one time we went on vacation. I actually don't remember it in the moment, but I learned about it m- many years later. And this speaks to how my dad handled things. Uh, we went on a vacation. Apparently we came back and the associate pastor had tried to make a coup and take the church over while we were gone. And my dad handled it, still loved the man. And he was still a part of the church for many years after this. And I never knew about it, but, but my dad handled it with grace, right? I also remember one time that uh, we were in church league basketball, way worse than city league, right? And we pray before games, you know, and we huddle around both churches, we hold hands, ask the Lord. And then everybody's knowing like, I'm going to elbow that guy here in a little bit, you know? So it was church league basketball. It was our church, the Assembly of God Church versus the Calvary Chapel Church at the Baptist Church gym. And like I said before, the the Lord was not in it. You know, that was a bad joke right there. But uh, we began to play this game and it got a little heated. My brother was the youth pastor of our church and he got into it a little bit with the youth pastor of the other church. We will remain unnamed. Uh, But they got into it and it got a little heated about the third quarter and my dad calls a timeout and he calls us in and he's like, guys, bring it in. And we're like, yeah, tell us what we need to do to win this game. And he goes, pack your stuff up. We're leaving. We're like, okay. And we packed up our shoes, got our water bottles and we were out and we forfeited that game. And my dad realized, and he showed me in that moment, it was more important to forfeit a game than forfeit relationships with other believers. When everybody else wanted to play the game. I got to witness my dad stand firm for what was right. Third thing I uh, learned from my dad is in Psalm chapter 56, verse three and four. But when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. I praise God for what he has promised. I trust in God. So why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? Third thing I learned is to trust God. You know what's crazy about the word trust is we don't really even have to exercise that word in our lives unless we have tough times. Occasionally we do. It's like trusting a seatbelt without ever getting into the car. You don't really have to do that. But when I trust God, it's usually in those times of difficulty, right? I got to witness my mom and dad trust the Lord in many of those times. And and I like how the scripture says that they trust God and praise him for what's promised, not for what's been delivered. Something maybe they never even attained, 
They never even received, but they trusted God. When I was 16 years old, the junior year in high school, my mom, who had battled cancer for many years, passed away. And I got to see my mom all the way in that time of difficulty and pain, trust God, and even in her, on her deathbed, confess her love and trust for the Lord. And I thought, why can't I do that? Well, I should be able to trust God, and my life is nowhere near that hard. And seeing my dad, I'd wake up many mornings and go out in the living room to get breakfast, or the kitchen, and the living room was right there, and he'd be curled up in a ball covered by a blanket, sleeping, but he started praying early every morning. And to see them trust God for the promises, even though maybe they seemed far away many, many times, to trust God. And just to wrap up my time, just to tell all you fathers to build hope in you and to bring life, not to beat you up, but man, you, you can do it. You can teach your kids. It's never too late. Even as an adult kid, I need my dad to teach me. And we all know in our world that we live in, somebody will teach our kids. And, and they'll learn things from somebody. And it's our job as fathers, especially, and mothers in here, to teach our kids those, those important godly things. If you wonder where to start, maybe start where my dad taught me. Work hard and stand firm and trust God. Thanks, everybody. Good to be with you. My name is Dave Carlson. Uh, I have three daughters and my wife uh, here this morning of 29 years, and happy to be happy to be here uh, talking to you on this Father's Day. Well, Jo and Craig talked to me a few weeks ago and asked if I would share about how my relationship with my father affected my being a father to my three girls, and. Um, I know that story, and it's not, it's not necessarily a, a fun story, and it's certainly not a story that I talk about very often. In fact, I never really talk about it until this weekend, and then I've shared it with like a thousand of my closest friends. <laughs> but up until that point, there was like a handful of people. In fact, I called my daughters last week to tell them the story and say, is it okay if I tell the story? So anyway, um, part of the reason I don't tell it is because I don't want to live in victimhood. Um, I don't feel like a victim, and I don't want to live in that spot. And the other reason is that I know many of you have stories that my story doesn't hold a candle to, and I don't ever want to be like, we have competing stories, uh, and who's got the worst story? But anyway, my story... Um, my mom, uh, who's passed, been passed away for about six years now, died at 85, had me when she was 39. Uh, my mom suffered, uh, with a lot of emotional trauma in her life and, uh, had severe depression, bouts of severe depression, likely because when she was a young girl, her father molested her and raped her. And I can't imagine anything being worse than that for a little girl to have their father betray that trust. Hope that's not happened to anybody here. Odds are not good that it's not happened to anybody here, unfortunately, statistically. Um, so that created in my mom this massive vacuum for love, for acceptance. And that expre expressed itself very unhealthily in relationships. Um, and so that was a piece of my growing up. 
she was married and divorced uh, eight times uh, throughout her life. And on her, it was about 1969, when she was uh, in the midst of her second marriage, they were very strained. They were, I don't think, not living together at the time. And she met another man and was intimate uh, with him. And I was the result of that relationship, which was very awkward at the time. Um, People ask me, uh, or, or sometimes, occasionally I'll share that I was adopted. I don't know really what you call what I was. Uh, my last name would really be Harrison, but they put Carlson, I think, to avoid some awkwardness. Um, but as it was, uh, they tried, my, my real father and my mother tried to make it right, and so she divorced Russell Carlson, who is my, my namesake, and married Sherman Harrison. On their shortly, a few days after that marriage, uh, my mom found out that the divorce papers somehow were not filed correctly, and so the marriage was not official. So that was problematic, and for whatever reason, Russell Carlson and my mom were married for six years beyond that point, which is crazy to me how that worked. I don't know, other than it's North Idaho, and weird things can happen like that here. And this was the 70s, and we were hillbillies, uh, North Idaho hillbillies. Um, so at, uh, at about five years old, uh, my mom every year would ha- take me to Sears. Back in the old days, when you were a kid, they would take you to Sears or Kmart or wherever, and you'd get your picture taken. And evidently, she had been doing that and sending those pictures to my real father, But on about my fifth birthday, um, my mom received a letter from my dad saying, just simply, stop sending stuff here. David is not my son. With that picture, three pictures ripped up. And my mom gave that to me. Um, I, my mom was always very honest with me, which, uh, with where I came from. I just grew up that way. I didn't didn't even necessarily know that that's not how everybody's life was. Um, But I remember that being kind of a big deal to me. Uh, At about six years old, my Russell Carlson and my mom divorced. And between the time I was six and about nine, we moved a lot. Moved. I was in six different schools uh, between first grade and third grade. Um, And that was not particularly healthy for me. Um, it didn't, it, I thought I was reflecting back. I thought I was a pretty good kid, but realizing the discipline that I was receiving in my life by being in the principal's office and all those things quite a bit, I must not have been that great of a kid reflecting back. Um, but right about my 10th birthday, my mom remarried and we moved to Kamei, Idaho, the thriving metropolis. Um, <laughs> And uh, she married a man who was a logger there, and he was a pretty quiet man and emotionally damaged himself. I think he was beaten by his father when he was a, was a young boy, and so he was fairly uninvolved. And the thing he had going against him was that I didn't like him because he stole my mom. I can't tell you why 10-year-old, 11-year-old little boys feel that way, but that is how it works, it seems like. 
I remember one afternoon being outside of the home uh, in the front yard. We lived out of town, quite a ways raking the leaves and thinking, man, it would be so cool if my real dad drove by and saw me out here. Um, I don't even know that I necessarily needed him to talk to me. It was just that longing that's inside of a young boy to be identified by their father, to be connected to their father. <clears throat> right about my 16th birthday, uh, that stepfather died of cancer. Um, leading up to that, uh, he, had, he had lung cancer, and so they were gone. My mom and him were gone. He was a veteran. Goodbye, Caitlin. I love you. My daughter, Caitlin's headed back to her home in Tennessee. Part of my heart's going right there. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> Can it be any worse? Um, so leading up to that time uh, of his death, uh, they, would, they would travel to Seattle or Spokane. Um, I'm really not crying about this point. So my daughter just walked out. Um, and so uh, I would live by myself for maybe a couple months at a time because he would go get treatments uh, in, these, in Seattle. And ultimately, it did not work, and he died. Um, that was not a positive contributor to me as well. <laughs> for a 15, 14, 15-year-old 15 boy to live by himself for few months at a time, um, you might imagine, unsupervised, uh, how that turned out. And then my mother slipped into severe, severe depression. Um, and I probably didn't help it much because I'd been making my own decisions and those decisions weren't great. And it didn't necessarily contribute to a positive, uh, warm, fuzzy feelings in our home. Um, went on uh, to graduate high school and went to the University of Idaho. And I'd been dating a girl for a couple years and uh, she called me, she lived down in Lewiston and um, Jo can probably tell you Lewiston girls, you kinda gotta watch out for Lewiston girls if you don't know, Ray Dean is from Lewiston as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, so she called me uh, and said, hey, I'd like to get together. I was coming from Kamii back to U of I. I said, great, I'll swing in. Swung in. She was at work, and uh, she came out, sat in my car, and she shared with me that, uh, that she was pregnant with my child. And so my head started spinning <laughs> at that moment, and I said, hey, listen, I will quit college and I'll get a job at the mill, and I proposed to her to get married. And she said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to get an abortion. I want you to pay for half of it, and I don't want to ever see you again. <laughs> um, that was probably the worst moment of my life up to that point. And it ripped my heart out. I said, there's no way that I'm going to pay for half of an abortion. I will pay for everything for you to have this child. 
But that's not how it turned out because I didn't have a, a say in that. And that shredded me. I didn't know what to do with myself at that moment in time. And that night in 1989, October of 1989, driving from Lewiston to Moscow, Idaho in my 1971 Chevelle, I cried out to Jesus truly for the first time to take this shame and guilt that absolutely suffocated me and exchange it for his wholeness and his goodness and to allow him to introduce me for the first time to my true father. And that radically changed my life forever. It was the only thing that truly brought healing to my life. Um, a couple months later, that same fall, uh, I felt like God said to me that I should go look up my real father. I'd never met him, never seen him. Roughly knew where he lived. Um, and he lives in the backwoods of near Potlatch, between Potlatch and Viola, Idaho. Um, not that anybody really knows where that is. But... Uh, I headed out that way and started asking neighbors, hey, do you know where Sherman Harrison? Yep, yep, keep driving. And got to his place and walked up to the front door and knocked on the front door, and he came to the front door. And I introduced myself, hey, I'm David Carlson. And he kind of gave me this blank stare, which I interpreted to mean, I don't want anything to do with you. No problem. I just wanted to meet you one time in my life. And turned around, started heading away. And then he said to me, um, can I help you with something? In such a way that I realized he doesn't know who I am. The name David Carlson doesn't mean anything to him 19 years later. So I gave him a few details, and he understood who I was, and he invited me into his home. And we talked for about a half hour, and he said, well, you probably better get going. Uh, I think my wife's going to be home soon. So I left, and over the, he passed away about five years ago at 94, and I went to see him a handful of times again following that, and uh, I never, he never acknowledged me uh, as his son. I wouldn't say we had some tough conversations, and they were not necessarily nice things that he would have to say. But it was, in my mind, my only opportunity that I would ever have to find out who my identity was in my father. Um, I think it's in the heart of every person, maybe, but for sure every boy, to know where they came from, who my identity is. And that was my opportunity. So why did I just tell you that long story? because it has massively affected me as a parent, me as a person, but me as a parent. I've tried to do exactly the opposite of all that for my children. There's a quote. One minute, I'll be able to see it here. Thank you. There's a quote that I think I most identify with. Though the wounding wasn't your fault, the healing is your responsibility. 
Though your past may not be your fault, your future is your responsibility. Though their choices were not your fault, your choices are your responsibility. To me, that is the definition of what being a father is. Good morning and welcome. It's great to be here with all the fathers this morning and, and all the families together in this church, in this great church. It's great to be able to stand with these great fathers here that God has blessed their lives with. My name is Leo Kaler, and I have been a missionary in Japan for 68 years. <clears throat> my wife and I, my wife and I have uh, been in, in Japan those 68 years, and God is blessed. There's churches in Japan today that were not there 68 years ago, and uh, uh, when we started out uh, uh, that many that long ago. Uh, there were not Christian families there. Uh, there were no, uh, uh, once one young person would get saved and another young person would get saved, but there's no Christian families. So we began to teach the, the truths of, of the Bible that uh, God, God wants uh, the whole family saved, household sal salvation. And <clears throat> young people grew up and they got married and they say, we want to have a family like yours. And so uh, now in those churches in Japan, we have many, many families that are three-generation, four-generation Christian families. Many of them started out being the first, first generation, and, and now they're fourfold. Yes, hallelujah. I want to read from Psalm 78, which uh, I believe is that God has given us the blueprint for, uh, to tell us how faith, uh, about faith that spans the generations. <clears throat> O oh, my people, listen to my instructions. Open your ears uh, to what I am saying. For I will speak to you in a parable. I will teach you hidden lessons uh, from our past. Stories that uh, have, uh, we have heard and known. Stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the gracious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty works, uh, for he issued his laws to Jacob and his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them, even the children that are not yet born. And they in turn will teach their own children. To each so each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting the glorious miracles and obeying his commandments. Then they will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, and unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to the Lord. <clears throat> God wants uh, faith to continue through the generations. And in Japan, many times, many times I've asked the, uh, our, our, our con congregations in Japan, how many are here for the first time? You, you, you are your, the first uh, in your generation to accept Jesus Christ. You're a first generation Christian. Raise your hand. And so uh, many, many people would raise their hand. And maybe there's first generation people here today. You're, you're the first one in your line that have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would always say, congratulations. Praise God. 
you have the tremendous privilege of, of starting a line uh, of Christian, uh, of Christian uh, heritage that you can pass on down the line. Praise God. <clears throat> when, I looked, uh, when I found out about my, my uh, ancestors, I, I, real, I, I learned that uh, three German young men left uh, Germany in 16, no, 1767, 1767, 250 years ago, came to America, settled around Philadelphia area, and um, that's where, that's my knowledge of where my line started. Went, I'm sure we went, went on way back beyond that, but uh, then one of his children, one of those men became my, my ancestor. One of his children bought a German Bible. Um, there it is. You can see that German Bible. That, that German Bible was printed 1770 in Germany, and it's the translation of Martin Luther, the Martin Luther German Bible that was, was uh, transformed Germany. And that Bible had been passed down all the way. My father received it uh, in line. He passed it on to me, and uh, I have since passed it on to my son, who in turn will pass it on to uh, his son, uh, one of his sons, one someday down the way. So this is uh, the, the generation, go through the generations that God wants, wants faith to continue through the generations. Uh, let's see the picture of my, my father and my grandfather. Uh, my father's standing there. My father was a missionary to India, was there for 15 years uh, in, in, in missionary work in India. And uh, then uh, his father, uh, father uh, grandfather Joseph, uh, was a great man of God in his community, and he loved Jesus. He gave his son to, to go to India. He didn't know whether he'd ever see him again, but uh, for 15 years, his son, uh, my father, was in India as a missionary. Well, uh, just 100 years ago, my grandfather Joseph passed away in 1921, just 100 years ago, and uh, that was... Nine years or so before I was born, but he was heard. He was heard to pray as his the last things on uh, words on his lips as he passed away. He was heard praying for the missionaries in India, and in Africa, and in China, and in Japan. And I realized that before I was ever born, uh, prayers were going up, and those prayers have carried me through the years. And I rejoice for that uh, for that privilege. And in turn. I want to pray for my kids, my grandkids, great-grandkids, and kids yet unborn. Well, fast forward. When I was 20 years old, I answered the call for missionaries to go to Japan. As many, many of you realize, remember, perhaps, history buffs that you are, in 1946, World War II finished. General Douglas MacArthur called for 1,000 missionaries to come to Japan to preach the gospel to a broken nation. And uh, that didn't happen right away, but uh, by 19, from 1950 to 1955, some 5,000 missionaries responded to that call. Well, I was one of them, and um, my wife was the other. Well, we met in Japan. A year and a half after I was in Japan, and one year after she came to Japan, we met in Japan. We had to go to Japan to meet each other, and that's what happened. There we are. That's our wedding day. Woo! 
I like to say it's the greatest day of my life. God blessed our home with a little, uh, a couple years later with our first, uh, first little boy, uh, Robert Leo. Uh, he was uh, actually three weeks, three weeks premature and he weighed only four and a half pounds and he's so small I could hardly hold him in my big hands. <clears throat> Fast forward, 60 years forward. God has blessed our home with six children. These chick, six, uh, six children grew up in a, all grew up in Japan. The, four, the boys, four boys and two girls, four boys. You know, the Kaler boys are born in Japan and Kaler girls are born in America. Yeah. <laughs> but they all grew up in Japan. And we did church together. We did homeschool at home. Uh, my wife taught these kids uh, for over a period of 25 years in homeschooling in Japan. And... Uh, and sometimes they said, we wish we could be in America. We wish we could do what kids in America get to do. And uh, my wife has always had a good word in response to that. No, you, you, you got to realize that we have the Japan advantage. <laughs> Look at all the good things that you get to do that nobody else gets to do. Who, who gets to ride on an airplane around the world? Who gets to have some of God's... Uh, best ministry that comes through uh, and stay in our home and get to know them personally. We've had wonderful people stand in our home. Uh, our, our home church is a, uh, uh, Bible Temple in Portland, Oregon, Manor House Church now. Uh, Dick Iverson was, stayed in our home. Uh, George Evans was in our home. Um, who else? Kevin Cotter, Frank DiMaggio, and uh, well, a lot of others. And so our kids get, grew up getting to know these men of God that they would never have known personally otherwise. So we had the Japan advantage. <clears throat> all of our kids, when they grew up, graduated from high school, they all attended Portland Bible College in Portland. And three of the boys met their spouses there in, in Portland Bible College and have returned to Japan or are ministering in Japan today. I need to qualify that just a little bit because our fourth son, Joel, uh, passed away five years ago. God took him to his heavenly reward. And I like to say, well, he finished his work in half the time it takes the rest of us to do it. <laughs> well, our family continues to grow. We have six children. They gave us 25 grandchildren. We have 20, 22 great-grandchildren and two on the way. And they just keep growing. Kids keep getting married, keep having kids. And our number reaches uh, 70 now. My prayer list keeps getting longer and longer. But you know what? We have six kids, so six days a week, I, I do one family at a time. You know, Monday, Tuesday, <laughs> Wednesday. So which day, is, which day is your day of the week? Pray for them and their family. Well, give me two or three more minutes and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be done. Uh, 
I want to think, uh, talk about uh, what kind of a father am I? When we look at the story of King David and all the wonderful things about King David, yet when he was started off in life, he became king at uh, uh, 30 years of age, uh, was uh, anointed king of, the, of Judah. And the Bible gives us a list of the sons that were born to him when he was uh, king in, in, in Judah. But you know what? Those boys didn't know their father. Their father was too busy building the kingdom. They didn't know their father. He was too busy. He was an absentee father. And those boys grew up without any father input into their lives. And what happened to them? One of them, Ammon, raped his sister. Another one, Absalom, murdered Ammon. Then went on to rebel against his father. Went to war, tried to kill his father. But you know what? God is a gracious God. He gives us a second chance and third chance and fourth chance. When Solomon was born, I think David must have been 50 years old, maybe 55 or so. And when Solomon grew up, he, he made a tremendous, gave a tremendous tribute to his, to his father David. And I like to read that from Proverbs chapter 4. My children, listen when your father corrects you. Pay attention and, and learn good judgment, for I'm giving you good guidance. Don't turn away from my instructions, for I too was once my father's son, tenderly loved as my mother's only child. My father taught me, take my words to heart, follow my commands and you will live. So what made the difference between the first batch of boys and then Solomon's life? I think that uh, David became a wise father. He went back and read the law of the Lord. And here's the definition, uh, part of a definition of, uh, of what it is to be a wise father. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repent. Uh, repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to, the ha to your hands and wear them on the foreheads as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What a definition. What a way to be a wise father. And I think all of us here today want to be wise fathers and, and fulfill this kind of instructions. Thank you.